And welcome to Here We Stand. I'm your host, Kevin Annett, Eagle Strong Voice. That was Phil Oaks, of course, our folk singing friend from the 60s and 70s. It's July 17th, and we are here today, as always, to help us all unite at this time, especially because of an event that's happening in Canada very soon. And that's, of course, the visit of the war criminal Jorge Bergoglio, who calls himself Pope Francis. There's a whole movement happening to stop him. And, of course, we are right in the heart of that movement. We are here today not only to educate, but to organize and to prepare people for that action. Because the purpose of the show is not simply to give you knowledge, but to arm you with the knowledge that you need with which to act. Folks, I'm going to take a slight pause here because I'm not hear anything coming on on the radio. Just hold on a minute. I think there's a technical problem because I'm not hearing my voice coming in at all. Okay. Never mind. Sorry. Seemed to be okay. Sorry about that technical snafu. And speaking of that, sorry about last week. There was another technical problem and our show didn't even air, but apparently that's going to be dealt with, so that won't be repeated in the future. Anyway, about, uh, you know, that whole theme that we heard from Phil Oaks, it's really about seizing the day, because we won't be able to do anything once we're gone, folks. It makes every day precious, and makes it all that more important to act every day. You know, another day goes by, and we say, well, that's one day less that we could have acted, one day less that we could have saved a child's life or brought down the system that's causing it. And today what we're going to do is look into not only the background to the so-called people visit and who is this man, Jorge Bergoglio, and the forces around him, but talk about the last 30 years and the hard evidence you need to know to take action. We're not here to talk. We're here to act to save lives. We all know that things are down to the wire. We have to gear ourselves for this war. I knew a guy once, Joe Hensby. I've talked about him in other books and things. And uh, I met him when I was a young guy, uh, around 18, out of high school. And I used to go down to the Longshore Hiring Hall in Vancouver, down on the waterfront, looking for work. I met Joe there. He's an, he was an old dissident longshoreman, blacklisted and thrown out of every job imaginable, because he wouldn't take any shit, because he used to fight for people to the end, fight for his fellow workers and for all sorts of causes. And here's a poem. I remember we were sitting in the pub once down there, Hastings Street, near the waterfront. And Joe scribbled out, he was kind of like a, a poet as well, working-class poet, and he scribbled out this poem and he handed it to me. And to me, that's part of the inspiration for today. More not the dead that in the cool earth lie, the calm, sweet earth that mothers all who die. More not your captive comrades who must dwell, too strong to strive, within each steel-bound coffin of a prison cell, buried alive, but rather mourn the apathetic throng, the cowed and the meek, who see the world's great anguish and its wrong, and dare not speak. Well, it's funny Joe talked about speaking, because one of his favorite expressions was, talk and don't do shit. <laughs> and uh, it's kind of ironic to be recognizing that on a program where we basically talk, but the words are like seeds, or to spark something in you whereby you're not going to stand by anymore and take the shit from anybody. Everything is in what we do. And that's part of what 
the urgency of this program today because a week today, Jorge Bergoglio arrives in Canada. And I'm going to talk a little bit about that first. The second part of the show, we're going to get into more of the history, issues like how do you wage spiritual battle and warfare and that kind of thing. And at the break, we're going to listen to our good friend George Carlin as a bit of comic and truthful um, relief. <laughs> we need to laugh, folks. <laughs> I know I sure the hell need to. So um, let's talk a little bit about this man. It's actually uh, an article that's going to go up on our site, murderbydecree.com, tomorrow under um, ITCCS updates and republicofcanada.org under breaking news. It's a piece I filmed and wrote called Under the Robes, Who is Jorge Mario Bogolio? Notes on a New World Order Pope. And you'll see in that article on the, the thing, images, um, the thing we're going to put up online tomorrow, images of this guy. Um, the first image is him giving communion in Argentina as an archbishop to a delightful character called General Jorge Videla, who is responsible for the murder of over 30,000 Argentines. You know, one has to wonder about a guy like Bergoglio, who goes around in a white gown all the time. I remember there was a great detective novelist and failed oil tycoon called Raymond Chandler. He wrote these detective novels, and he knew all about the seeming nature of power. He once observed that you can always spot the biggest gangster in town by the way he dresses to please. The present bishop of Rome seems to be an avid student of Chandler. Because Jorge Bergoglio has always been someone who projects a pleasing public image, no doubt because of the tarnished trail of murder and corruption he's left in his wake. Ever since his salad days as a friend and public relations frontman of the murderous military junta in Argentina, Bergoglio has relied on his smiling, beneficent visage to distract from all the bones in his closet. Perhaps that's why his nickname among Latin American bishops is El Camaleon, which means the chameleon, changes his spots. Well, switching his image is a special skill of the man called Pope Francis. His rapid ascent from a lowly priest to head of the Jesuits and Archbishop of Buenos Aires was due to his personal friendship with butchers like Jorge, Jose Lopez Rega. Rega was the founder of something called the AAA. It was a death squad that went out and kidnapped, tortured, and killed thousands of Argentines, including Bergoglio's own priests, during the dirty wars of the 1970s and 80s. Bergoglio was so often seen in the jovial company of Rega and dictator General Jorge Videla that Videla and him were nicknamed Los Gamelos Jorges, which means the Jorge twins. Yet these bloody associations didn't prevent Bergoglio from doing like he does now, and that's to posture as a church reformer and politically correct defender of human rights, wearing both masks. Well, Clearly, an accomplished con artist like Curious George was destined for even greater criminality in the Church of Rome, especially following the disgrace and deposing of Pope Benedict that we helped bring about early in 2013 with a common law court trial. And after that, the Church needed serious damage control, and so Jorge was just what they needed. Well, El Camaleon is at it again next week in yet another stage public performance. Bergoglio was coming to Canada on July 24th, ostensibly to emit a few crocodile tears over the legions of indigenous children his church slaughtered for their own good. Hypocrisy and spin doctoring aside, it's a, it's a curious thing for Bergoglio to be doing, since, personally, he sees nothing wrong with the murder of, quote, pagan unbelievers. And here's an example. The last time Pope Francis came to North America in 2017, he beatified 
which means turned into a saint, Junipero Serra. This guy was a Catholic missionary in California who personally enslaved and worked to death over 100,000 native people on Franciscan plantations in California. And what did the Pope say about him? Quote, we are inspired by his zeal. And in the uh, thing we're going to post, you can see a picture of a bunch of native people in Sacramento pulling down Junipero's statue after covering it in blood. And it's a good thing they pulled down that butcher because it also pulled down the whole lie that Bergoglio is some kind of progressive guy. He supports the murder of non-Catholics. Liberal or conservative, they all believe the same thing. If you're not a Catholic, you don't necessarily have the right to live. You don't have the rights of the rest of us. Well, here's the question. Why is genocide a blessed thing to do in California, but has to be apologized for in Canada? Well, Curious George doesn't try explaining that, or his doublethink, notwithstanding all of his hoodwinked Catholic followers who swallowed such lies, and as readily as they believe that God is found in a communion, communion wafer, the rest of us have to be wondering about what is the real purpose of Bergoglio coming to Canada. Well, you can answer that with two words, China and money. Lots of money. Some of you may recall how U.S. President Joe Biden recently scurried over to Rome to publicly fawn over Bergie. Well, Joe wasn't there in Italy just to get Catholic votes or trash the American Constitution's First Amendment separation of church and state. His real aim was to halt the transfer of sizable Vatican Bank gold reserves from America and Italy to Beijing. Because under Bergoglio, the papacy is jumping ship into the Chinese camp and it's financially underwriting the latter's economic takeover of North America. And now, that brings us to Prince Rupert, British Columbia. Because according to Vatican sources, a day before Bergoglio is scheduled to appear in Edmonton on July 24th, the papal entourage will meet on the West Coast with ranking Chinese officials, and they're going to sign a credit agreement. And that agreement will provide over, get this, $700 billion in Vatican money to fund the expansion of Chinese control over Canadian and U.S. oil, natural gas, and the transportation infrastructure all over the continent. Bergoglio is going to be accompanied in his journey by Vatican Secretary of State Pietro Perlin. And he's a guy who was the strongest advocate of Rome aligned with Beijing, and he brokered and set up this Prince Rupert Agreement. The whole thing about apologizing for residential schools is a cover for this business deal. Well, another indication of this whole move is Bergoglio's curious three-hour stop in Nunavut, which is an Inuit community on Baffin Island, at the very last day of his Canadian trip. Why is he going to Nunavut for only three hours? Well, there isn't that much around Nunavut on Baffin Island except ice flows and polar bears, except it also just happens to sit on over one quarter of the untapped oil reserves in Canada. Similarly, Bergoglio's first official stop is smack dab in the heart of Alberta's oil-rich tar sands, just outside Edmonton. No coincidence, boys and girls. Well, none of this is too much of a surprise when one considers that the Vatican is the world's largest and most secretive bank and money launderer. Bergoglio's personal appearance to finalize that agreement isn't just about money. It's even more important. It's a sign of the strategic importance of this new political alliance between the Vatican and China to solidify what we call the corporatocracy, the new global tyranny. Well, after all, the Church of Rome is the world's oldest corporation. It's also the historic architect of fascism, and it's 
totalitarian corporatist system that pioneered today's New World Order. The Vatican is a natural ally of China, and its Mandarin Maoist system of emperor worship and one-party rule that just mirrors the Vatican and the whole Catholic Church. This was evident in, get this, this is another interesting thing, in September 2018, in an unprecedented move that had never happened before, Pope Francis signed an agreement with the Chinese government that actually allows it to appoint Chinese Catholic bishops, a power normally reserved by Rome. Well, this action was followed by a series of transfer payments between the Vatican and Beijing, totaling $2 billion every year, according to a former Chinese politician named Guo Wengui. He says every year, Beijing is putting $2 billion into the Vatican Bank to juice and oil a deal. Well, when you think about it, bankers aren't the kind of guys to entrust all their loot to unreliable leaders. They tend to remove them when they're not reliable because, after all, their bottom line is protecting their money. Well, this is especially true when it comes to a major operation like the Vatican Bank that handles a majority of the world's financial deposits. The last pope who didn't play ball with the gnomes of Zurich ended up dead after only a month in office. That was, of course, John Paul I in 1978, who tried to investigate the Vatican Bank and who was really operating it. Well, fortunately for the bankers, Francis Jorge is no John Paul I. The fact that the wily Argentine is still perched on the papal throne after nearly a decade, and that he's sitting down in person with the Chinese on July 23rd, means that he's just what the bankers ordered too. Well, still, there's nothing more treacherous than Roman politics, especially for someone as personally compromised as Jorge Bergoglio. His tainted past in Argentina includes his documented role in trafficking children of political prisoners, and also obtaining Vatican funding for the military junta's Exocet missiles during the Falklands War with England in 1982. Now, all of that dirt is being exploited now by Bergoglio's adversaries in the College of Cardinals. Now, who are these adversaries? Well, Jorge faces an entrenched opposition among traditional pro-Western cardinals around the former Pope Benedict, Joe, Joe Ratzinger, whose allies among Canadian bishops blocked Bergoglio's attempted visit to Canada last year, apparently with American encouragement and money. So, that's why he didn't show up. And his upcoming journey is, like I've said, being threatened by indigenous elders and a national Stop the Pope campaign that plans to blockade and disrupt the papal events. Well, to top it off, and this gets even more ridiculous, there's also the little matter of Curious George's very curious relationship with a woman called Maxima Zuriagiata, the Queen of the Netherlands. It seems that Maxima, a fellow Argentine, has known Bergoglio since she was a child. The Queen of the Netherlands has been making regular payments to Bergoglio since 2008 to the tune of 12,000 euros or $15,000 every month. When he became Pope in 2013, Maxima gave Bergoglio an additional 128,000 euros, or about $160,000. That's from a Dutch journalist, Alice Sturr, who works in our network and has dug deeply through contacts in the church into all of this. Well, when confronted with these facts in June 2019, the Vatican Press Office at first denied, but then they finally confirmed this financial dealing going on between the Pope and the Dutch Queen. But they refused to comment on the documentation that showed that Bergoglio assisted Maxima in expunging a criminal record she had acquired in Argentina to allow her to marry into Dutch royalty. But the rot goes deeper. 
Now, if you go to this article tomorrow, you'll see a picture of the scumbag. Her father, Maxima Zorogieta's father, is Jorge Zorogieta, who looks as creepy as Joe Ratzinger, frankly. Her father, Jorge Zorogieta, was a cabinet minister in the Videla military junta during the Dirty Wars, and he was a close friend of the present Pope Francis. Zorogieta was forced to resign from the junta in 1981 when allegations surfaced that he was personally implicated in the kidnapping and torture of Argentine citizens, including a female journalist who had been publicly critical of both the junta and Jorge Bogolio, and that woman ended up getting murdered in prison. However, according to a retired nun who served in the Buenos Aires Diocese office under then-Archbishop Jorge Bogolio, Zorigieta was a regular participant with Bergolo in what the nun calls, quote, strange ceremonies in the basement of the Plaza del Mayo Cathedral in downtown Buenos Aires. And during that ritual, rape, torture, and murder of children occurred. And this is confirms other insiders who've been part of these rituals. Apparently, Maxima Zorigieta was used in these rituals as a child in what has been discovered to be an intergenerational sacrificial network within the Catholic Church known as the Ninth Circle. We've talked about that a lot. Well, Toos Neenhaus is a Dutch woman who was raised in a Ninth Circle Catholic family in Utrecht, Holland. She was ritually raped and tortured starting at the age of four. I remember sitting down with her in her home a number of years ago and, and getting her whole, whole testimony, which you can see online. Well, when Tos was nine years old, she personally witnessed Archbishop Jorge Bergoglio rape and kill another young girl during a Ninth Circle ritual in a sub-basement crypt in a chateau outside Utrecht, Holland. She also attests that she saw a Cardinal Elfrink and the mother-in-law of Maxime Azariegieta, who was former Dutch Queen Beatrix. They both participated in the ritual, according to Tos. Well, these facts cast Pope Francis's July 23rd meeting in Prince Rupert with the Chinese in an even more chilling light, because the route between there and his next destination in Edmonton runs, runs precisely east-west through the infamous Highway of Tears, where native families traditionally go missing. Now, I knew uh, RCMP officer George Brown, a native man who's retired now, and he and I set up a citizen's inquiry into missing women early in the century, around 2002 in Vancouver. George testifies that many of the bodies of Native people who were initially found along the Highway of Tears between Prince Rupert and Prince George, they were missing organs and bore signs of ritual dismemberment. But of course, these facts were erased from police and coroner's reports and censored right out of the media. Well, of equal note is the fact that Ninth Circle rituals tend to occur on guess what day of the month, the 23rd and 24th. And that's exactly the days when Jorge Bergoglio will arrive in Canada and meet with his Chinese associates. Now, we know for a fact now that Saturday, July 23rd, this next Saturday at midnight, there will be a Ninth Circle sacrificial ritual taking somewhere along that highway of tears. It takes place in the area where there are already ch Native people and children and women being killed. Because, don't forget, the Ninth Circle ceremonies are conducted to coincide with important events because it's the ancient belief in Rome that the blood of innocence ensures and sanctifies the success of any undertaking. I mean, after all, that kind of belief in the redemptive power of sacrificing children, it's at the bedrock of Roman Catholic faith. It's embodied in its so-called mass, 
where it's believed that the literal body and blood of God's sacrificed son Jesus is consumed and grants eternal life. The line separating such a practice from the cannibalism of children's remains that occurs during Ninth Circle Satanic Mass, that line is so thin as to be non-existent. Well, in closing, I am still perplexed why anyone with a knowledge of religious genocide, the history of the Catholic Church, and their standing policy, criminal satanus, that harbors and protects child killers and rapists in their own church, why anyone with a knowledge of that would find it difficult to believe that so-called saintly men in white robes are stained with the blood of others. Because Jorge Bergoglio is. He's been steeped in murder for many years, and under his robes lies the barely concealed evidence. Jesus predicted that when he said, For woe be to you, priests and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead men's bones and everything unclean. Whether or not Bergoglio and his accomplices in church and state are finally stopped and brought to justice will determine how many more children will die at the hands of the church that led the official slaughter of 60,000 native children in Canadian death camps called residential schools. Regardless, the justice of heaven has pronounced his own verdict against the oldest criminal conspiracy in our planet and on the killer named Jorge Bergoglio, whose official title is Vicari Christi, the one who replaces Christ, replaces him with murder and satanic lies. Because as it says in the book of John, he was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks from his character for he is a liar and a father of lies. And don't forget, Pope Francis Jorge Bergoglio said on September 2nd, 2013, soon after becoming Pope, quote, Have no fear when men call me Christ on earth, for I am he. And Jesus has the final word, For many will come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and will deceive many. But do not you be, be deceived. Well, you can see all of this again tomorrow online, murderbugdecree.com and republicofcanada.org under breaking news. Right now we're going to take a comic relief break, but a very truthful statement from George Carlin about the misuse of words and language and how it deceives and enslaves. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms or euphemistic language. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. And it gets worse with every generation. For some reason, it just keeps getting worse. I'll give you an example of that. There's a condition in combat most people know about it. It's when a fighting person's nervous system has been stressed to its absolute peak and maximum, can't take any more input. The nervous system has either snapped or is about to snap. In the First World War, that condition was called shell shock. Simple, honest, direct language. Two syllables, shell shock. Almost sounds like the guns themselves. That was 70 years ago. Then a whole generation went by, and the Second World War came along, and we, the very same combat condition was called battle fatigue. Four syllables now. Takes a little longer to say. Doesn't seem to hurt as much. Fatigue is a nicer word than shock. Shell shock. Battle fatigue. <laughs> then we had the war in Korea in 1950. Madison Avenue was riding high by that time, and the very same combat condition 
was called operational exhaustion. Hey, we're up to eight syllables now. And the humanity has been squeezed completely out of the phrase. It's totally sterile now. Operational exhaustion. Sounds like something that might happen to your car. Then, of course, came the war in Vietnam, which has only been over for about 16 or 17 years. And thanks to the lies and deceit surrounding that war, I guess it's no surprise that the very same condition was called post-traumatic stress disorder. Still eight syllables, but we've added a hyphen. And the pain is completely buried under jargon. Post-traumatic stress disorder. I'll bet you, if we'd have still been calling it shell shock, some of those Vietnam veterans might have gotten the attention they needed at the time. I'll bet you that. I'll bet you But, but it didn't happen. And one of the reasons, one of the reasons is because we were using that soft language, that language that takes the life out of life. And it is a function of time. It does keep getting worse. Give you another example. Sometime during my life, sometime during my life, toilet paper became bathroom tissue. I wasn't notified of this. No one asked me if I agreed with it. It just happened. Toilet paper became bathroom tissue. Sneakers became running shoes. False teeth became dental appliances. Medicine became medication. Information became directory assistance. The dump became the landfill. Car crashes became automobile accidents. Partly cloudy became partly sunny. Motels became motor lodges. House trailers became mobile homes. Used cars became previously owned transportation. <laughs> room service became guest room dining. And constipation became occasional irregularity. <laughs> when I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization or a wellness center to consult a health care delivery professional. Poor people used to live in slums. Now the economically disadvantaged occupy substandard housing in the inner cities. And they're broke. They're broke. They don't have a negative cash flow position. They're fucking broke. Because a lot of them were fired. You know, fired, management wanted to curtail redundancies in the human resources area. So many people are no longer viable members of the workforce. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. <laughs> or they depopulate the area. The government doesn't lie and engages in disinformation. The Pentagon actually measures nuclear radiation in something they call sunshine units. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. And... Yeah. And some of this stuff is just silly. We know, we all know that. Like on the airlines, they say they want to pre-board. Well, what the hell is pre-board? What does that mean? To get on before you get on? 
They say they're going to pre-board those passengers in need of special assistance. Cripples! Simple, honest, direct language. There's no shame attached to the word cripple that I can find in any dictionary. No shame attached to it. In fact, it's a word used in Bible translations. Jesus healed the cripples. Doesn't take seven words to describe that condition. But we don't have any cripples in this country anymore. We have the physically challenged. Is that a grotesque enough evasion for you? How about differently abled? I've heard them call that differently abled. You can't even call these people handicapped anymore. They'll say, we're not handicapped, we're handicapable. <laughs> these poor people have been bullshitted by the system into believing that if you change the name of the condition, somehow you'll change the condition. Well, hey, cousin, <laughs> doesn't happen. Doesn't happen. We have no more deaf people in this country, hearing impaired. No one's blind anymore, partially sighted or visually impaired. We have no more stupid people. Everybody has a learning disorder. <laughs> or he's minimally exceptional. How would you like to be told that about your child? He's minimally exceptional. Oh, thank God for that. <laughs> Psychologists actually have started calling ugly people those with severe appearance deficits. It's getting so bad that any day now I expect to hear a rape victim referred to as an unwilling sperm recipient. <laughs> and we have no more old people in this country. No more old people. We shipped them all away and we brought in these senior citizens. Isn't that a typically American 20th century phrase? Bloodless lifeless no pulse in one of them a senior citizen but I've accepted that when I've come to terms with it I know it's here to stay we'll never get rid of it that's what they're gonna be called so I'll relax on that but the one I do resist the one I keep resisting is when they look at an old guy and they'll say look at him Dan he's 90 years young <laughs> imagine the fear of aging that reveals to not even be able to use the word old to describe someone to have to use an antonym and fear of aging is natural, it's universal, isn't it? We all have that. No one wants to get old, no one wants to die, but we do. So we bullshit ourselves. <laughs> I started bullshitting myself when I got to my 40s. As soon as I was in my 40s, I'd look in the mirror and I'd say, Well, I, I guess I'm getting older. <laughs> older sounds a little better than old, doesn't it? Sounds like it might even last a little longer. Bullshit, I'm getting old. And it's okay, because thanks to our fear of death in this country, I won't have to die. I'll pass away. <laughs> or I'll expire like a magazine subscription. If it happens in the hospital, they'll call it a terminal episode. The insurance company will refer to it as negative patient care outcome. And if it's the result of malpractice, they'll say it was a therapeutic misadventure. I'm telling you, some of this language makes me want to vomit. Well, maybe not vomit. Makes me want to engage in an involuntary personal protein spill. Thank you all.
Good old George. Well, you know, that's not only funny, but so accurate because it, it's so important to be aware of how language is designed by an oppressive system to keep us all insulated from the reality of our crime, our group crime. But this started for me in the 90s when I first began came across the evidence of mass murder going on, the response to the system, when the first survivors of residential schools, and again, that's a euphemism, they weren't schools, they never got any education, they were internment camps, and eventually death camps, because the death rate in the average one of these places was twice the rate that you found in the death camps of Europe during World War II. It was on average over 50%. It's not called genocide, it's called abuse, and children being estranged from their families. You see, what he's talking about is exactly our problem, because the language is designed to evade and deny and to lessen the crime so that the criminals get away with it and keep doing it. And, you know, he's always down on America, because that's where he was, but, uh, you know, when Carlin gives these performances. But, frankly, folks, Canada's a lot worse, because I've been half American. I've had a lot of experience in both countries. In America, yeah, there's a lot more conflict and a lot of really... <laughs> unpredictable stuff that goes on, but at least people tend to speak more. They say what they mean, and they mean what they say. Canada, there's an incredible level of inward, what do you call it? It's uh, the ability to lie to oneself automatically. And um, there's a beautiful, actually, quote from Isaiah, and I wanted to read some of these things uh, to get into this in the second half, but... Um, Isaiah gets this call as a prophet from God, and Isaiah says, here's God saying, whom shall I send? Who shall go for us to fight for us? And Isaiah says, here I am, Lord, send me. He volunteers. Well, God comes back unexpectedly and says, go to these people and tell them, you will hear but not understand. You will see but not perceive. Make the heart of these people fat and make their ears heavy and shut their eyes, lest they see and understand and change and be saved. Sounds like God's saying, I don't want these people to change. I want them to destroy themselves. It's almost like the system is so corrupt and so caught up in its lies and, and murder, it can't change, and it's got to come down. But we prevent that from happening by fostering the illusion that we can somehow reform it back into the right way. No, the thing, you know, like, as they say, God's way is not our way. The law of nature doesn't take into account human fear and foibles. It says, look, you're going to destroy yourselves because you're not changing, and it's coming down. And it's a good thing, because the only way you can have something new be born is for a death to occur. And I've learned that. And and in that sense, um, language is very important. Always say what you mean. We found that in the healing circles. And again, there's another lie. They call them healing circles. That was what the white word were, was when a lot of these survivors of torture got together and began to talk about their experiences. I used to go to a lot of these things in the downtown part of Vancouver. and there was no healing going on at all, seeing people never recover from these things. There was, we called them talking circles, because that's really what they were. But um, in the, uh, oh, now I forgot what I was going to say. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm old, after all. I'm 66, folks. Um, in these talking circles, people would not be able to say what happened to them. They would use the language of, of the people who did it to them, the oppressor, the, the dominant Canadian culture. They would say, I was abused, and I would say to them, is that really what happened to you? What really happened to you? And they'd say, well, no, a priest held me down and anally raped me. 
Well, that's not abuse. Abuse is like speaking harshly to somebody. That's a deliberate term that they put in in 1990 when they first raised the issue of the death camps, a.k.a. residential schools. They used the term abuse. Phil Fontaine, the chief puppet of the Assembly of First Nations, government-paid puppet, got up and said, I was abused in a residential school. Well, that sounds kind of mild. Oh, somebody spoke harshly to you. Oh, they didn't like to speak your language in one of these schools. At least you're getting an education. No, he was tortured and saw friends killed in an internment camp, a, ca- a Catholic, Anglican, United Church death camp, where half the children never came back. Nearly 100,000 children. Not one person's ever gone to jail or trial for any of those deaths, yet we call it abuse. So, knowing all that... Um, is very important backdrop for what's happening now because the reason nobody has taken on Jorge Bergoglio, quote, Pope Francis. But again, programming, Pope means Papa, means Father. Defer to the parental figure, folks. Or you'll get whacked, that's what a raised hand means. We'll whack you hard if you take us on. Every Native person knows that. So that's why they stay away from protests en masse because they know they can die from it. Our fortune in Vancouver and the movement we built is that there were few people who weren't afraid, and they did go and help us occupy those churches. They were killed for it, but they stood up like men and women at the end of their life and did that action. But they're few and far between, whether in the Native world and the white world. And I want to show you this quote from a guy, Mark Angus. He was in my church in Port Alberni. And just before I was fired, he got killed. He had spoken. I had an open pulpit policy. And people could get up and talk about anything. That's how we first began to hear about the, the deaths in the local death camp in Alberni run by the United Church. And we, he got up and began to talk about the child trafficking and the drug trafficking going on in the Alberni Valley through the churches, through the Knights of Columbus, through the Rotary Club. He began to name all the names. Well, he was found dead two weeks later. But before that, he came into my office in the church and he sat down. And here's some of what he said. It's in my books. I talk about this. But Mark said to me, Kev, my life's over now. I know that. But that doesn't matter. You're the one I worry about, Kev. You're the one who's in real danger. And I asked him what he meant. And he said, the evil thing that killed all those Native kids, it's hiding in the church. It's hiding in all the churches. And this thing hates you for ripping off its mask. It wants you dead because it knows you'll never give up. So now you can't trust anybody, not even your own wife. Everybody's going to abandon and betray you. You'll be fighting that thing alone with only God in your corner. And you know what? Of all the things said to me over the years, and all the things said to me now by email or the platitudes of keep going, Kev, we're behind you, even though we don't want to do it, keep going. All of the platitudes, none of it is as true as Mark. what Mark told me there. And the next week, he was found dead in his hotel room. I had to identify the body, and I did the funeral his funeral in the church. And something slipped for me. Something snapped inside. When I realized that they were killing our people today, not just in the past, but still today, if they talk about this, I said, to hell with that. I am not giving up on this. And everything he said proved true. My wife left. The church went to her. They paid for a divorce. Lost the kids. Lost my daughters. Regular contact with them. Blacklisting and an attack that's still continuing to this day. Because this thing inside the churches that runs the minds and the hearts and the lives of the all these people who we would like to hate, the government and the church and the corporate leaders and all these people, you know, the so-called cabal, they're all being owned and run by something else, by this spirit. And I'll tell you, honestly, 
I've seen its face. I've had dreams, I've had visions, and I've seen this thing that runs everybody. And it's one of the reasons I've learned to be not patient, because I'm not patient by nature, especially when it comes to injustice and crime and murder children. We shouldn't be patient or tolerant ever, or we're part of the problem. What I've learned, though, is to understand better why people never act. When they talk and they get to a certain point, I call it um, suddenly the, the this thing that owns everybody. As soon as we get close to an issue or evidence or anything, all the people who are with us, suddenly it's like they're pulled back on a leash. They'll all pull back. They won't go to the protest. They all drop away. Everyone I've ever worked with has pretty much dropped away after a certain period of time because this thing doesn't want them to die the way I died and to open up and get reborn with that inner sight because William Coombs and Mark Angus and I, over time, Develop that inner sight whereby we can actually see this thing. We see it. It's almost like I don't see it physically or in my eyes. I see it in visions. I see it in my mind, sometimes in dreams. And it's like this thing with endless numbers of tentacles, and these tentacles all run into everybody, and they're living off us. It's a parasitic energy form that controls our thoughts. There was a guy, Marcus Aurelius, who was a, happened to be a Roman emperor, but he was also an amazing philosopher. And, um, he called it a hegemonicon, and it's where we get the word hegemony, or kind of absolute control. And a hegemonicon is what it, some people call the group mind. Some people call it God. Um, but the group mind, or the hegemonicon, controls us automatically. We don't even know we have its thoughts, but we are not operating outside its mind all the time. That's why it's funny, when people use the term revolution, we're taught that that's the most radical term you can use to describe social change. But what does revolution mean? revolve. You start in one place and you go around in a circle and you come back to where you were. That's not change. That's uh, it's that's the original word. Again, the importance of understanding the meaning of words. It's like the word progress. In our culture and time, progress means gradual improvement almost. Uh, over time, you're going in a certain direction. That's the opposite of what the term meant in the Middle Ages. A progress was a big circle. Some rich guy would, would travel around in his kingdom and visit all of the places, and they would feed him, uh, take care of him and that. But uh, it was called a progress. You go in a big circle and come back to where you began, like revolution. So these terms are wired into us. We're, all we're doing, are, we're rats in a cage, running around, controlled by this thing, thinking we're changing things, and we're not. It's only people who die who get killed. And I mean that in a real way, because I was killed. My whole life, the way I thought of things, my relationships, everybody I ever knew, including my own children, and all the people who stood with me, they were either killed in battle or they got turned. Because there isn't one person working in this movement now who's lasted very long at it. There's nobody in it now who's been out of longer th from the few years. And they won't be out of much longer because they'll be turned as well. They'll be stopped. That's the kind of world we're in. But there's a few of us who aren't like that, and we can see. And you might be wondering, well, why is this guy still walking around physically? Okay. That's because, for some reason, they can't touch me. And I know that when I was standing outside the Vatican in 2009, October 11th, when I did the exorcism there, and a tornado hit Rome the next day. This is all documented. Murderbydecree.com, all the documents, the images from Il Manifesto newspaper showing the tornado that hit Rome the next morning after my exorcism. I called out this entity. And that same week, the entity of the Vatican was forced to admit that Joseph Ratzinger at the time was covering up child killing. That first hit the European media. 
after we did that exorcism. Well, after that date, I realized there's some part of me that can't be touched because I'm operating in a different dimensional reality that I've escaped the confine. And I don't mean to sound strange by doing this. I'm just being honest with what I experience every day that a lot of people don't understand, but that doesn't matter. I'm speaking to the few of you who do, who get it, who've gone through the same death experience and rebirth. And that is that it can't touch us because it's an illusion. The world we live in is a crafted illusion, but it's real in the sense that it feeds off our energy. It's parasitic on us, and especially off the deaths of children. Here's the thing. How can these churches still be allowed to operate? How come people aren't storming the Catholic Church knowing they, they're killing children and trafficking them and as we speak, or the United or Anglican churches? How come they don't arrest Bergoglio on the site immediately when they see him? Because they don't dare lift even their thoughts against it. We'll call for protests. We'll call for church occupations. By and large, they don't happen. The only time they've ever happened is by people who are totally on the edge, like I was. People like Bingo Dawson and Harry Wilson, Billy Coombs. They occupied the churches in Vancouver that forced this stuff out with me because we had nothing to lose. We knew it. We were not operating in their world. We had, they had no control over us, no fear. Because don't forget, fear is not the issue here. It's control. And you're controlled by leading a self-oriented life. Because when you lead a selfless life and you're living for others and you've forgotten yourself, courage comes naturally. But when you're always worrying about what's going to happen to you, that selfish lifestyle that we're raised in, this narcissistic, screwed-up, atomistic, me-first culture, where everyone says, Kevin, teach me common law so I don't have to pay taxes. Teach me so I don't get arrested. Well, listen, people, quit worrying about yourself for a minute and talk about the people down the road and how you've got to fight for the one who's about to be killed, the people in the less, <laughs> who have less than you, who have a lot more to worry about. When you start worrying about them and stop operating from selfish motives, then yeah, we can build something. But short of that, it's not going to change. And that's how the system has us all locked in and is feeding off us as we speak. You know, there's a, um, I've only got about five minutes left here. And thank you for listening to my, my rant, my, my sermon. It's a necessary rant. It's, it's gotta come from that source in us that hasn't been killed. And it's in all of us, even though you're controlled, even though you haven't gone through that veil, most of you, of death and rebirth. It's still in you. And you always have to make a choice whether to follow that spirit at the price of everything, what Jesus called the pearl of great price, for which everything in your life needs to be sacrificed, what he called the kingdom of heaven, which actually means, in Aramaic, the realm of eternity, where we dwell, a few of us, where nothing can touch us because we're operating from a godly motive and energy, and from that world, the realm of eternity. Now, whether or not we're going to evolve into that or whether we're finished as a people, it doesn't matter. What matters is not to stay safe, and that's what all the slaves tell me all the time. Stay safe. Stay safe. As if that matters. Stay true. If you honor yourself and me, don't tell me to stay safe. Say, stay true, Kev. And I've tried to stay true. And on that note, I want to end with a reminder that today is the 98th birthday of my Uncle Bob, who died at 19. And I'll tell you how he died. He was a Youngest officer in the HMCS Athabascan, which was a Canadian destroyer during World War II. They were in channel duty just before World War, just before D-Day. I want to end by saying that my Uncle Bob, when he was in the water drowning, gave his life jacket to a man who was drowning, and he died from it. But he had discovered the truth. 
that you don't live for yourself, you live for others. And that's the way we're going to get out of this. Now, I'm going to go off the air now. I'm going to play the final song. I'll talk to you all soon, but please stand by for more tomorrow on republicofcanada.org under breaking news. There'll be more posted, including the stuff I was referring to earlier. And contact me, angelfire101 at protonmail.com. Murderbydecree.com. This is Kevin Ann at Eagle Strong Voice. I thank you.